Hi, I'm Dr. Hillary McBride. Normally, therapy sessions are totally confidential, but in other people's problems, I open the doors to let you hear sessions with my long-standing clients. This is what people sound like when they talk with someone they trust about healing addiction, parenting stress, racist ideologies in the family, and other topics that feel so timely as we come through this difficult time. Other People's Problems, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It's a bizarre and beautiful thing when a 15th century concept becomes embedded in pop culture. Kintsugi is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery with precious metals, often with gold. You take something broken and you mend it, but you're not trying to hide the scars. The brokenness is the point. The artist Makoto Fujimura says, repairing a broken world? Could there even be a more powerful message right now? This has become ubiquitous uh, in, in cinema and TV, from Star Wars to Ted Lasso. So I, I, I'm delighted by that because it is really the message of our time. And uh, I gave a commencement speech a while back called Kintsugi Generation because I believe this generation coming up experiencing so much trauma and fracture, they need to uh, have this metaphor, at least, in, in, in understanding their lives, that brokenness is the beginning of making, and, and trauma is something that we face to create into uh, rather than run away from. Fujimura has been called an accidental theologian, but the story of how he became a believer is one you don't hear every day. I was reading a poem, epic poem by William Blake, a British uh, romantic poet uh, and also an engraver and artist. Uh, he illuminated his own poems and his last epic poem called Jerusalem uh, it was his life work. And at the end of that poem, Jesus speaks from the cross. And when I heard Jesus' voice, uh, which actually matches the Gospel of John perfectly. I, I was so drawn in and taken in. If this is true, I, I thought to myself, everything changes. I've seen artists described as guardians of the human spirit. Makoto Fujimura makes you believe it. A feature interview coming up. Later this hour, Naoku Kamaru says Kintsugi isn't just about repairing bowls or plates. It's about repairing people. And she has first-hand evidence, her own life. Before I was crying every day, I didn't have any hope. But now I have a full of hope because I finally managed to accept my imperfection and who I am and where I am coming from and everything is just my fragment start connecting since I started practicing Kintsugi. Mending the Broken Places with a new season on Tapestry. Welcome to you. I'm Mary Hines. The philosopher Roger Scruton taught that great artists offer a remedy for all the chaos and suffering of life, and that remedy is beauty, because a beautiful work of art brings consolation in a time of sorrow and affirmation in times of joy. As Roger Scruton said, it makes this human life worthwhile in spite of everything. 
You're about to meet someone whose life's work as an artist explores what it means to be human and what it means to create beauty in a world that can feel broken. Makoto Fujimura is my guest. Hello to you. Great to be here, Mary. Lovely to have you here. You know, there is a question I've been asking for years. Whenever I interview artists, musicians, novelists, does the person who is creating something have some higher responsibility when it comes to the human spirit, lifting people up? Is it part of the artist's job to inspire, or is that just not what you do? Oh, absolutely. It is part of stewardship, responsibility of stewarding, first of all, your gifts, but also materials, circumstances, opportunities given. Um, You're always thinking about, you know, primarily how the reality of what you're doing as an artist, what you're creating, matters to you, that it is part of what I think is part of what we are here to love the world. And if we can do that well uh, through what we do as artists, I think that's that's the best uh, expression that we can give back to the world. Oh, someone made a comment just today online. It was about Black Mirror, the television series, but I think it applies to a lot of dystopian storytelling out there. And the the writer said, you know, can we stop with all the dystopias? Please make good art about the realities you'd like to see in the world, not the ones you want to avoid. What do you make of a, of that sentiment? Whether it's dystopian or utopian, um, either way, the craft of making has its own its own integrity, and and you can really, in a sense, test that by what endures over time, what continues to speak, what I call generative in the reception of art. Mm. So that's, that's the ultimate judgment. And also, even if it's dystopian, dark, does it create a kind of a sense of longing for hope? And does it open up to give us, you know, way to understand the world better? Mm. And if dark works can give us that, then it's worth considering that as well. I like how complicated it is in your view. It's not a simple matter of, yes, please just paint pictures of, of beautiful fields of flowers and, and you know, gorgeous sunsets. You've been an artist, I think you've seen yourself as an artist pretty much since you were a child. When did this impulse begin for you, this feeling that in making art, in creating, you were doing something deeply spiritual? I can remember back as when I was three, I have this painting that my mother kept, and um, I look at it every morning to tell myself, well, that's my goal, to be as free and uh, loose and trusting as those lines are. And um, they are lines and colors that I echo what I do today, actually. So I think I knew very early on there was something very unique about my experience of especially painting, uh, because I felt this surge of energy go through me. And I didn't know what to call that. I, I thought everybody had this experience. Uh, but it turns out to be I was being in touch with what what I do with my hands and what I sense going on in, in the transcendent realities. I know a problem we run into on this 
podcast, this radio show, is some of this is so hard to put into words, but I'm I'm so curious about the the sensation for you, you know, in in from the first stirrings of that feeling to what you feel in the studio when you create at at this moment, what is the sense for you that you are in touch with something? in touch with something eternal, in touch with something divine, in touch with something sublime. What is the felt sense for you? It's integration and presence. It's a presence with a capital P. Um, first of all, in, internally, there is this peace that overcomes uh, the chaos that is out there. Even when I was painting near Ground Zero in New York City, Every time I walked into my studio, even if I was traumatized um, by what was going on outside, I always had a place to go where my hands literally guided me and the sense of peace would come over me as I'm working. And for, for many people who enjoy making things like gardening or even cooking, I, I think that, that in a way it's it's very similar. Um, but uh, to me, I, I've always felt this powerful presence and this sacredness, and, which I have words for now. But it's something that you know I sense is not just of this world, but of new creation to come. Uh, that is a portal into another world. I I'd like to quote. You hear uh, the essential question is not whether we are religious, but whether we are making something. Tell me, tell me what you mean. Yeah. So the way I come about this in my uh, approach has always been to look at the act of making and the fruitfulness of that act. Hopefully, and we judge the work by its fruitfulness. And by that, I mean, does it create generatively into the world? Does it give back something that we long for, we we hope for in, in that work of art, whether it be paintings or theater or uh, cinema? And if it does, then you can kind of work backwards <laughs> to to see if, if that fruitfulness um, may have a way to formalize it or uh, in, in a way create a way for people outside of that discipline to experience that. So you end up having a communal experience over uh, that which is beautiful. And that allows us not just for single artists to experience that sacredness, but for all people to, in a sense, create into that. I, well, I'm, I'm curious about something else you've said uh, on this, that Someone might be closer to the mark if you are picturing the divine as a creator, as a maker, than if you're constantly thinking of the divine as a lecturer or some kind of stern <laughs> presence. Tell, tell me about your thinking on, on that front. God created first. Uh, that's the first thing we know about God. Uh, if you were to read Genesis 1, we know that this God is the artist. Um, God can create something out of nothing outside of time and space. And we are limited and bound by our finiteness. And yet this invitation from this God who created the universe uh, and us is to gratuitously live into that 
promise of extravagance and hope uh, and joy that God must have had in creating the universe out of love. When we try to make, we are tapping into that. No matter whether you're religious or not, God, God is there alongside our experience of uh, searching and creating. And, and you've said you became a believer because of a poem. I do, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever heard that from someone before. <laughs> Tell me how that happened. Right. I was reading a poem, epic poem by William Blake, a British uh, romantic poet yeah. uh, and also an engraver and artist. Uh, he illuminated his own poems and his last epic poem called Jerusalem uh, was his life work. And at the end of that poem, Jesus speaks from the cross. And when I heard Jesus' voice, uh, which actually matches the Gospel of John perfectly. I, I was so drawn in and taken in. If this is true, I, I, I thought to myself, everything changes. And this is the voice that I have been hearing all my life when, when I made or when I created. And so that was my inversion <laughs> because, you know, my, my imagination was already there. I just had to intellectually assent <laughs> to all that who he claimed to be, Jesus uh, claimed to be. And uh, once I did, my, my life was not the same. But but William Blake is so often described as a seeker, but never a joiner. He was actually mm -hmm. pretty hostile to capital R religion. Were you ever tempted by that more free form William Blake path of you know spiritual but not religious? Well, I to me that was attractive. You know, as an artist <laughs> searching, I really identified with some of the critiques, and some of it's right critiques of the institution uh, of the church and the oppression that that institution can can become. And now I have, I believe in the church, and I I believe that if you know William Blake was around today, as I I help hopefully many artists to see that their inclinations do not have to be necessarily religious to tap into what is important. And the church needs their voice to give us an understanding or experience of the divine experience of transcendence in, in our broken times. So uh, part of my empathy for other artists or my advocacy for them uh, really comes from figures like William Blake or Emily Dickinson or Vincent van Gogh. I, I want to get into your methods as an artist, but I'm so curious about the materials, mm -hmm. I think, more than anything else. And I'm, I'm, I'm so intrigued by a piece called Psalm C, which is uh, an artwork in which you used um, pulverized oyster shells in, a, in an ancient Japanese tradition. What is it about these glowing shells that, that speaks to you, that this material that was once part of something alive. Right. So I use minerals used in 17th century Japan. Uh, I literally tie my art to 16th and 17th century Japanese tradition of pulverizing minerals and such as oyster shell and minerals, uh, azurite, malachite, and mixed with hide glue, Japanese hide glue, and that is often painted on paper, uh, silk, uh, different surfaces. 
so the entire process is what I call slow art because mm. you have to first pulverize these minerals and, and there are artisans, uh, generations of artisans who help you to find your own zone, as it were, uh, in using this really ancient materials. But there, there are so many ways and, and, and it's pretty complicated. Even the oyster shell, to master that gofun, they call it gofun, craft it takes three years at the, to get to a point where you feel like you you can use it this is a slowing down process of using you know minerals and materials that are organic uh, sometimes they are um, that some sea piece has over 100 layers um, because you start out by layering very uh, thinly at first to create this refractive surface that would look to the eye, uh, even though it may be monotone of one type of color, it is prismatic when you uh, slow down enough to look at them um, and that creates this magical surface. I love this term slow art and and <laughs> you've described this as being a slow process that fights against efficiency and that yeah. that strikes me as a, a very powerful current to be swimming against in the 21st century how do you say no I am resisting to the the cult of efficiency all around you yeah it's a it's certainly a discipline that you you develop over time and I've always felt the need to slow down. So so that was, you know, I, I felt like I, I had this inclination to stop and listen and and look at the beauty around me. Um and I never lost that, fortunately, uh, which which was always the case uh, when I was a child. But as as I, I understood the world better, I understood that that is swimming against the current. And I had to be intentional to cultivate that side of me to not only to preserve it, but but to let it grow into something more uh, beautiful and abundant for the world to see that it is possible. We want to be efficient to fix what is wrong. And uh, it's kind of an industrial model of efficiency and utilitarian, uh, pragmatic model. So art provides something that is not very useful, right? So uh, we, we are often seen as in the margins. And yet, to me, that's precisely why art is so central to who we are as a human being. You've referred to a kind of um, plumbing theology <laughs> that, <laughs> <Right>. that exists <laughs> in some certain factions of organized religion, and that's something that you are also resisting. What, what are you talking about when you refer to the, the plumbing theology? Yeah, so when I go to churches, I, I often say to my bride, well, that was a plumbing theology. <laughs> you know, it, it offers uh, this promise, of course, of, of the gospel of redemption through Jesus and the resurrection and, and hope through that. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying, you know, fixing, trying to fix the world. Um, but the assumption there is that we do the fixing and we have the tools to do it. And in, in some ways, unless we do it, God is not going to act. Now, it is true that God is asking us to act, but it's, it's 
it's to create <laughs> into the world, trusting that God has already initiated this grand project of bringing true love, pure love into the world through us. And in order to love the world, we cannot see anybody, you know, strangers as a kind of a utilitarian project, you know, a checklist of uh, things to accomplish and, you know, goals of fixing their problems. Because that's not how, first of all, we find healing. You know, we find healing by finding community of broken people, willing to acknowledge and be vulnerable to our own brokenness first, and inviting others to share theirs, uh, the fragments, the pieces that they bring into it, and then rejoicing that even if we don't do anything at that point, God sees our, takes our fragments and looks at them, beholds them as beautiful. But, I, but I'm wondering whether there isn't a role for a kind of plumbing theology, you know, when a church also functions as a soup kitchen, when it's doing something very pragmatic to solve a problem efficiently in the now. Yes, uh, that's a good point. Uh, but many times those are uh, seen as something that would earn brownie points uh, when when it is in the essence, you know, beauty and mercy are two things that the survival of the fittest mentality cannot account for. When we look back in our lives, the moments that stand out to us are not the things that we put in our resumes, um, even soup kitchens. No, the, the, the things that stand out to us, uh, a time when sacredness broke through uh, somebody who, who we are serving, and we are the ones transformed uh, when we thought we were going there to serve others, be transformed. And when that happens, that's God's art breaking through uh, our hearts. And, and that's what I think ultimately where, um, you know, God's light and God's love can shine through uh, this broken world. You're with Tapestry. Thanks for inviting us in, whether it's on podcast, on the CBC Listen app, or on CBC Radio 1. If you're listening online at cbc.ca slash tapestry, hello to you. I'm Mary Hines. His art was once described as being about hope and healing, redemption and refuge. Makoto Fujimura is a Japanese-American artist whose work can be found in galleries and museums all over the world. He's my guest as we begin a new season here on Tapestry. I love this image, um, this, the sacred breaking into the world, uh, the, a new creation breaking into the world. And you once had a remarkable experience um, in Tokyo with a taxi driver, um, <laughs> a moment that stays. It's about drumming. That's all I'm going to say. Would you yeah. t would you tell me that story? That, that's what I call one of the new creation stories, uh, just 
just breaks in when you're least expecting. And we were in Japan for a filming project, and uh, I had my dear friend, a percussionist and visionary composer, Susie Barrard, and her son in the cab. We were exhausted. It had poured upon us, and so we were all wet. <laughs> and, and we got in this cab. It just it was like a miraculous uh, cab because, you know, it was in the middle of Shibuya, Tokyo, mm. and it, it was impossible to find. It just rained, right? So everybody wants a cab. Right. And this cab just pulled up. Uh, this gentleman, uh, you could tell he was this one of those uh, professional drivers with white, white gloves, you know, very courteous. And because we had these tapping boards uh, uh, Andrew Nemer, one uh, tap dancer, was with us. So we had these boards in the back. We had to all squeeze in. So I sat in front, and um, all of a sudden, I didn't I didn't know that it was Emmanuel who was nine at the time began uh, to tap on the boards. But I had just told him what the taxi driver just told me when I told him that these were musicians and drummers, and he said, "Well." My wife was a drummer, and um, she passed away six months ago. And I don't know what to do with her drums. They're still there, just as it, it, it was when she passed away. And I, when I conveyed this to my friends in the back, um, and we were uh, getting closer to a hotel, all of a sudden this tapping began and Emmanuel began to tap and Susie began to tap and everybody had this percussive concert in the middle of a taxi. And as we got out of the taxi, the driver stepped out, came all the way around and gave me back my credit card, <laughs> gave this profound bow and and he had tears in his eyes. He said, isn't music wonderful? Mm. And at that moment, I believe eternity broke through and touched upon all of us. You were the first visual artist to receive the Kuiper Prize. Congratulations. Mm. Oh, thank the, you. The ceremony was uh, in Canada at Redeemer College in Ancaster, Ontario. And when you accepted the prize, you said... I'm here as an artist, but I am here to convince you, all of you, that you are artists. We are created to be creative. And someone listening might feel, I'll confess to you, I have had a twinge of this feeling. That's very easy for a remarkably talented professional artist to say. Mm -hmm. Tell me why you believe in this so strongly, even people who aren't, aren't as talented as you are, people who aren't making their living as creators or artists. How could I have been created to create. Well, Mary, you're doing this. And uh, even through these microphones and earphones, I, I hear a voice that is crafting and making into the world that is in need of mending and someone to speak into their hearts. And so all of us have something to create uh, back into the world. And it, so fundamentally, we are human beings. Because we are homo faber, we, we create, not seek to create for ourselves necessarily, but, but create out of abundance and extravagance and uh, gratuitously back into the world with love. And all of us has a capacity to do that. So all of us are in that sense artists of the kingdom. And this is 
God's invitation. It's not mine, even though I am the one speaking about art. Um, so this is what I hope everybody will understand and realize that the, the enormous possibility and capacity that we only get the chance to do on this side of eternity, which is to create something that God will take and multiply into the other side. That's what I hope people will gain from looking at my art uh, or, or listen to me speak or read my books. You've been, uh, you've been drawn to broken places in the world as an artist. You mentioned Ground Zero in New York, which was a very visceral experience for you. You've worked at the site of the tsunami in Japan. Is this about uh, bearing witness? What do you see as the role of an artist in the broken places? Yeah, that's an interesting question. When Columbine High School uh, incident happened, a mass shooting happened in Littleton, Colorado in 1999, something broke over me. I, I, I just understood that Pandora's box opened and there was new type of pain in the world. Just intuiting that, I, I began to paint columbines, this dainty little flower, which turns out to be the medieval symbol of the Holy Spirit. I didn't know that, but uh, I've been painting them ever since. And then 9-11, as a survivor, those towers fell on top of me as I was trapped in the subway underneath. So uh, to this day, there are hairline fractures that I, I deal with then 311 tsunami and so forth. I, I, I don't know why I have this sense of calling to look at trauma directly and, and to process that through my art. And it's not as if I you know, wake up every morning to go after those things. It's, it comes to me intuitively and, and I, I have to deal with it. Otherwise, it will consume me in some way. And so I, I continue to do that, but I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> at some point that, you know, I can get to the feast <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to be able to celebrate, you know, rather than just <laughs> lament over the things. But uh, I'll, I'll get there yet. The, the Japanese art of Kintsugi, highlighting the broken parts so they are only making the piece more beautiful. It's really having a moment. It's gone very mainstream in the last <laughs> yes, little did. while. It uh, figured in a plot line on Ted Lasso not so yes. long ago. I, and this is, a, this is an art form. You are a master of this. How would you, before we get into it, how would you describe the craft for someone who, uh, who, who perhaps is not yet familiar with it? Yeah, so Kintsugi is a venerable Japanese tradition that flows out of tea ceremony, high tea, uh, it was influenced, main influences Senorikyu of 16th century Japan, mm. but uh, whose aesthetic it, to this day defines Japanese aesthetics. And so Kintsugi taking fractured bowl ceramics and not throwing them away and buying a new one or uh, mending it so, it, you know, the fracture never happened. Japanese urushi masters, Japan lacquer masters will mend them to make new uh, by creating a design, accentuating and even focusing on the brokenness, the patterns of brokenness. And this has become ubiquitous uh, in, in cinema and TV, from Star Wars to Ted Lasso. So 
So I, 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 I'm delighted by that because it is really the message of our time. And uh, I gave a commencement speech a while, while back called Kintsugi Generation because I believe this generation coming up experiencing so much trauma and fracture, mm. they need to uh, have this metaphor, at least in, in, in understanding their lives, that brokenness is the beginning of making and, and trauma is something that we face to create into uh, rather than run away from. And if we can do that, then we will create a language of Kintsugi generation and uh, certainly the Hollywood writers and, you know, even, even in theater and in music and uh, even in editing films. People have told me Kintsugi is their main practice. Someone who is a Kintsugi master, uh, Kunio Nakamura, mm -hmm. says he only buys bowls that are broken and chipped. <laughs> right. <laughs> How do you experience that desire to repair and fix and mend um, in your own life, maybe be even beyond your art? Yeah, that that takes time and discipline. I, I think we have to constantly remind ourselves and practice this somatically, not just think about it and talk about it, mm. but but uh, create something that relies on observing what is broken in front of us and, and uh, you know, accepting it in some way uh, as something that as God accepts us when we are broken. You know, God sees us as beautiful and complete, even if we don't feel that way. And, and so we need to develop this craft and discipline to be able to have this mindset of first slowing down and rather than rushing to fix. The first thing to do is, is to behold, behold each other as we are, not as you know we feel that we are. Uh, and, and we are certainly broken. None of us are exempt in, in post-pandemic, endemic days. There are not a single person alive today that is not affected by COVID pandemic. And that is something that we share. Um, so it's an important opportunity to, to not ignore that, but, but to behold each other in, in our uh, sufferings and, and, and brokenness, um, but also in our longings that we want to see something beautiful come out of uh, broken places. You know, as your uh, Leonard Cohen <laughs> saying, you know, there's a crack, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Yeah. yeah. A lot of your work also centers on the idea of peace and, and peacemaking. Where do you see the connection between the idea of peacemaking and visiting the broken places, marking the broken places, the places of trauma in, in your work? Yeah. So first of all, peacemaking, you know, peace is to be made mm. rather than just peacekeeping, I suppose, mm. as important as that is. You know, I, I think for all of us, we in every community, every brokenness, every challenge, uh, it's an opportunity to create something new that didn't exist before whether it be, you know, streets of Trenton or New York City or uh, Toronto or UK. There are places, even in the highest realms, there are people who are going through trauma and challenges that we don't think about or see or hear about. So 
part of our journey uh, uh, and artists is invited to both places you know as an mm-hmm. artist i'm <laughs> i'm interested in the margins so i i'm very in a way comfortable speaking to people who do not not get the limelight but uh, have important things to say and beautiful things to teach me about uh, what they are going through and how they are making and so resiliently and places of museums and VIPs and political affairs that allow me to enter into with humility and also a listening heart because I, I know that these people are doing what they do, at least initially, the spark of it is to serve people. If I can help them to get back to that first love, then, you know, I think we can all find our voice and, you know, be able to come together in that that hope. You've you've talked about the idea of Homo sapiens, the wise human, versus Homo faber the creating human, the, the maker. We hear Homo sapiens so often and Homo faber almost never. What would we gain <laughs> by by thinking of ourselves as Homo faber, the maker, the creator? Right. First of all, we become Homo sapiens by first being Homo faber, right? So mm. uh, without making, you know, when we are born into this world, we first experience the world through smell, touch, and and taste. Clinical psychologist friend uh, tells me that it's bottom up and right left. <laughs> so so the affective emotive experience uh, leads to the rational and analytical. So all of these are human capacities and they're all important. But the process of how we come to know the world is bottom up, right, left. Now, what do we do in our education <laughs> classrooms? What do we do in our churches? It's opposite typically, right? So it's it's left, analytical, rational, informational first, mm-hmm. and then we try to push that into the aff- affective. So so we, we go into soup kitchens and we try to make that incarnate the, the reality of the gospel. And then, you know, we, we will hopefully hug a homeless person in need of touch. So it, it's often backwards. And my thought as an artist is, is to just go back to how we were <laughs> when we were babies and, and taste and see if there's fruitfulness there. And if there is love and fruitfulness in any place, whether it be in the church or outside or in, in the darkest corners of the universe, why not start there to find our voice in those places and, and efforts to help to uh, certainly restore and men to help them to see beauty, but for ourselves to be transformed by that process and to find, find ourselves to accept who we are, broken as we are, to see that God beholds us as beautiful. Mako Fujimura, I've, I have dreamed of interviewing you, and I am so uh, grateful for your, your presence and your time here. It's just really, really good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Makoto Fujimura is a Japanese-American artist whose work can be found in galleries and museums all over the world. In the spring of 2023, Fujimura was at Redeemer College in Ancaster, Ontario, where he was the first artist to receive the Kuiper Prize, awarded for excellence in Reformed theology and public life. Makoto Fujimura is also the author of the book Art and Faith, A Theology of Making, published by Yale University Press. Fujimura spoke to you from Princeton, New Jersey. This is Tapestry, keeping you company and helping you make sense of the world. If you're listening online at cbc.ca, hello to you. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app, on Spotify, on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, and on CBC Radio 1. I'm Mary Hines. If you have not been watching Ted Lasso, not to worry, what you're about to hear isn't really a spoiler, but it will show you how the art of kintsugi has woven itself all through pop culture. It's season three, and the owner of the football team, Rebecca Welton, is consulting a psychic. The psychic shows her a bowl that was once broken. Are you familiar with kintsugi? It's the Japanese art of mending broken things uh, with gold. It, the idea is that, that we embrace the flaws and the, and the imperfections and in doing so create something much stronger and more beautiful. A scene from the final season of Ted Lasso. Naoko Kamuru is an artist in Vancouver. Her story begins in Japan with her grandfather. He would bring home broken objects in his wheelbarrow, and soon the family entered the antique auction business. Following in those footsteps, Naoko devoted her life to classic art restoration. She'd hide every blemish and every crack as best she could, Sometimes you would barely even know that piece of art had been broken at all. But one day, Naoko faced her own shattering, and it brought her to a very different kind of restoration. I moved to Canada five years ago with my married uh, family. I had a relationship for 21 years, and my marriage was not working well for quite a long time. And when we moved to Canada, I was hoping that my marriage will get better, relationship will get better with my ex, but relationship got worse. And I expected to change my relationship in Canada, but didn't change, but something changed was myself. I became much stronger to be independent and leave my marriage and to be a single mother. So I evacuated to the women's shelter. That was the end of my marriage, which is about four, four or five years ago. And I thought my life is going to get better, but I start having trauma and grief because I, I was facing domestic violence during my marriage. And I actually went very bottom of my life and very dark place. 
One day, I received an email from a local potter, and that email was saying that, oh, Naoko, I'm sorry I missed your kintsugi workshop. I really want to learn kintsugi from you, so please put me into the waiting list for next time. And I was like, no, I, 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 I had no idea why she was saying kintsugi, because I never done kintsugi. And actually, I practiced and studied 25 years a European Western way of restoring ceramics, which is to hide all the damages. Like I imitate all the colors of the cracks and damaging part, and then I make it like invisible. So when I received this email, first I thought she was like really wanted to learn Kintsugi. So I thought, okay, she's, someone is looking for something very strongly. And am I able to do this? Yes, I am. I can do this if I manage to practice and learn. So I thought I was needed by someone. And when you are in a very dark place, no hope, crying every day, and someone is needing my help or asking something, you feel like, okay, yeah, this is the reason I am alive. I have to do this. So I asked my father in Japan to send me all the kintsugi books exist in Japan. And then I received and I studied for six months. And I was really immersed into a kintsugi philosophy, which is to embrace your imperfection, brokenness, incompleteness of life. After six months, I studied theory. I recontacted this potter who sent me a mysterious email. And I asked her, I'd like to know more how you made mistake. And then she said one day she went to shopping center and then she met the owner of local art center. And she told her that, oh, I'm so disappointed that I couldn't get into Naoko's workshop. She didn't say kintsugi, but the local potter, because she is a potter, she thought it's kintsugi. So she added kintsugi on top of her mistake. I never gave any workshop. So next morning, I knocked the door of local art center, and then I asked, thank you very much for your beautiful mistake. I am going to be a kintsugi artist, and I have to start practicing kintsugi at your art center. And she accepted uh, my request, and I had nine months living in art residency and then practiced kintsugi very hard that nine months. And then at the end of the art residency, I gave kintsugi workshop to the potters and communities in Power River in Canada. Because I was so hopeless, how my marriage didn't work. I was trying and trying to work it out, my marriage for 21 years, and nothing works. And then Kintsugi came in, and then when you look at Kintsugi, we highlight the brokenness and imperfection. We transform brokenness, imperfection, to be something very beautiful. So just, just looking at it, I thought, oh, I am able to do this to myself. I am so broken. I am so have so much pain. But if I work on it, instead of escaping or abandoning, I am able to transform. So I realized since then, I start not escaping from my pain. And I look at it, how can I transform my pain to strength? Like, think about when we do like a yoga practice and yoga instructors teaching us 
the funny postures we never done before, and I feel pain because I never used that part of the body or muscles. But if I practice every day, the pain transform to strength and start to feel good. So it's the same thing we can apply to our you know, pain in our heart. Instead of ignoring our pain or trying to forget, we have to work on it, why we feel this you know, pain and how can we make this pain to something you know, strong. The Kintsugi is giving us permission we can be ourselves, we can transform brokenness, imperfection to beauty. So when people bring broken ceramics, they come with negative emotion, like regret, anger, sadness, and because obviously their important ceramic got broken, and sometimes it's coming from their grandmother and they feel shame about. When I restored with European hidden restoration, they are very, very happy. They can't see the, anymore their mistakes or the joint brokenness. But when I do with Kintsugi, they were like amazed. So my first client told me that, oh, I'm so happy I broke my plate. And I was like, what did you say? Because I never, ever heard someone was happy broke their plate when I did hidden restoration. But with Kintsugi, they managed to say they are very happy they broke their plate because they see the result is more beautiful than before it was broken even. And they forgive their mistake, what they have done to the ceramic. Another... Interesting thing is when the client brings the ceramics, sometimes these ceramics are not belong to that person, belongs to the wife or girlfriend or someone they care about. And because the person block the plate feels so, so bad, they block the important piece of their loved one. So instead of they abandon their mistakes, they research find me and then ask me to do kintsugi. And after the kintsugi is done, the person give back the kintsugi artworks to the owner. And the owner is amazed of how the person didn't abandon their mistakes. They took responsibility. They decided to spend time and money to cover it up their mistakes. So their relationship actually become much, much stronger than before. Because in during the, you know, our lifetime, there are so many mistakes, so many bad situations happens again and again. And the Kintsugi ceramics became a symbol of the relationship that it's okay, we can work it out together if we don't, you know, abandon our responsibilities. And I realized that, oh, I'm not restoring only physical part of ceramics. I'm restoring a people's heart. We love, we find something, you know, strength and uniqueness from the mistakes or imperfection of life. Why things get broken? Because we use them. Like a ceramics, we use every day. They are like our body or the friend or family because what we drink 
is with ceramic cups, and what we eat is ceramic bowls and plate. So they are offering us so much love, and then some mistakes happen, and then it breaks. So we have to acknowledge that what they were offering love and care, and then once it's broken, can we just abandon and throw away? So I don't say only kintsugi is a good way. We can use this broken plate to make like a mosaic or turn to some different art or make tiles. But embrace you know, your brokenness, imperfection, incompleteness, impermanent of life. That's often people is thinking it's a more negative way or they want to avoid, they don't want to die, they have fears of being broken or unhappy, but it is part of life. Actually, after start practicing Kintsugi, I realized that this brokenness or pain in our heart or imperfection of life is the raw materials of happiness, strength, uniqueness, it's hard work if we want to transform all these negative things to positive things, but it works so beautifully if you, you know, working hard. And then actually after doing it several times, this process is, it's a painful journey, but we know we can be stronger, we can, we can get better, and we can be nicer to others, and we can appreciate life better if we go through this hard journey. Naoku Fukumura is a Kintsugi practitioner and ceramic restoration expert. She spoke to you from Vancouver. That's it for us this week. This episode was produced by Samir Chabra, Arman Egbali, McKenna Hadley-Burke, and Theo Van Busicom. Technical production by Laura Antonelli and Austin Pomeroy. The senior producer of Tapestry is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.